0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year subscription to Science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org/join. That's AAAS.org/join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January second, two thousand fifteen. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Justin Reich talks about the future of massive open online courses, also known as MOOCs. David Grimm is out this week, but we'll be back next week with more online news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. Despite their relative newness, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of online learners have hopped on the free open courseware bandwagon. I spoke with Justin Reich about the brief history of these online offerings and their effect on the way college classes are being taught online and offline
1: distance learning online is a phenomenon that's decades old, but, you know, pretty much as soon as we've had uh, internet connections between people, we've had people trying to teach and learn across those connections. In 2008, there are a group of Canadian educators that started experimenting with different forms of facilitating these courses online and building networks between people and they coined this term massive open online courses. In 2011 at Stanford, there were a number of different efforts to create uh, really large-scale courses, courses that could accommodate tens of thousands and ultimately hundreds of thousands of people. Sebastian Thrun taught a course called Introduction to AI, which had over 100,000 people, and then a little later at MIT. And the signature innovation of these later courses was that not only could they deliver content to all of these different folks but they also baked into that these automated assessments that could instantaneously give feedback and ultimately certify participation of you know as many learners as wanted to show up so across a number of different institutions including places like Harvard and Stanford and MIT there's been tremendous investment over the last couple of years in creating these kinds of courses that make you know learning experiences that were once only available to graduate students at these kinds of institutions available to anyone in the internet connected world
0: what what are the kind of the standard set of parameters for one of these massive courses? Does, it, does everyone participate simultaneously? Is it always free? What, what kind of things would you expect if you were signing up for one?
1: As the field has evolved, the diversity of these courses has definitely expanded greatly. Mm -hmm. And so your expectations would vary based on what you were doing. So we have courses at HarvardX, which are as small as a few thousand people and even some smaller courses that are by application only that are 500 people or fewer. Our largest course, uh, Introduction to Computer Science, has over 350,000 people registered for it. Some of the courses are absolutely every bit as difficult as the on-campus versions of our courses. If you can complete the problem sets in Introduction to Computer Science, you would probably do very well in our on-campus Introduction to Computer Science class. And then other courses are less concerned about certifying people's competency at really rigorous levels and more concerned with introducing people into a field and getting them familiar with the work that's happening. There have been a couple of courses that have been launched by MIT where you can earn a certificate in the course if you answer the one and only question in the course, which is, did you do all the required work for this course? (laughs) On your honor, if you've completed all that, then you can get a certificate. So it's an incredibly diverse time, especially, I think, if people had looked at just the first couple of courses that were created in 2011 or 2012, if you went back into the space now in 2014 and starting in 2015 – I think people will find a much wider range of learning experiences.
0: What do we know about the success of these courses? What kind of standards are being used to evaluate them? And and are they meeting the goals of the people who are promulgating this?
1: So I think one of the problems that we have now is that there are probably two indicators that people are really using. One is the certification rate of the course, which is usually calculated as the number of people who earn a certificate divided by the number of people who register. And that usually ends up being low, 5% or 6% of people. It's not necessarily a useful indicator because if a course does a really good job marketing itself, you might have tens of thousands of people who show up just kind of to check it out and maybe learn a little something about the field and then go on and leave. By contrast, you might have some courses which are, you know, relatively straightforward to finish or are not super academically rigorous and more people finish. Or you might have courses that are really, really hard trying to set a really high standard and fewer people finish. And all of those different approaches can meet the goals of the faculty. Behind them, the other things which are really easy to measure in these courses are how much participation people have. You know, virtually any time you take an action in one of these courses, it's recorded by the platform in the tracking logs as an event, as a click within the system. Since those are relatively easy to count, a lot of the early MOOC research has been counting those things: how many times do people press play? How many times do people submit a problem? In some ways, we have terabytes of data about what people are clicking and very little information about what's changing inside people's heads, which is what we really want to know. What we really want to know is whether or not students are learning in these experiences. And that means measuring at multiple time points throughout the course, trying to get a sense of what people's capabilities are as they come in and what their capabilities are as they end. We need to make sure that we're measuring all of the domains of learning that we care about in courses. So, for instance, we need to make sure in our science classes that we're measuring measuring their quantitative fluency, their ability to manipulate formulas and variables and those kinds of things, but also their conceptual understanding. Do they have the right intuitions about how the physical world works? The third bullet point which is in there is to try to use a combination of assessments that are both homegrown and particular to the course, but also assessments that may have been validated in other kinds of research studies. So we can start to make some comparisons about how students are learning in residential settings and traditional online settings and in these massive online settings.
0: When you talk about experimental research, do you mean trying out different platforms on, you know, random groups of students or what do you mean by experimental research here?
1: Yeah, almost exactly that. So one of the challenges of residential instruction is if you have 40 students in front of you, it's hard to give them different learning experiences and then evaluate which kinds of instructional strategies or content or instructional moves help support student learning better but one of the neat things that we can do in online spaces is we can randomly assign groups of students to have different learning experiences and then compare the outcomes of those students so there are lots of circumstances in which we just don't know you know which approach to teaching a concept will best illustrate a misconception or which approach to you know stimulating student motivation is going to best encourage people to be active and be participating So one of the things that we can do in these massive open online courses is that we can run experiments that let us test different instructional approaches and hopefully iteratively build courses that improve upon one another. All kinds of instructors you know, systematically vary their courses to try to improve teaching and learning. What we can do in online settings is gather much more data and do that process much more systematically. So hopefully, what we're learning will not only improve any teacher's individual class, but really contribute to the body of knowledge that we have about teaching and learning broadly.
0: There's still some holes in our understanding of how effective these are at reaching people and teaching people. What are some of the next steps that can be taken to actually get some standardization or some of this information out of the system right now?
1: So I think a lot of the work may fall on the course development side in making sure that courses have assessment structures that let us figure out what kinds of competencies people have coming in and what they're learning over the range of the course.
0: And what's your role in all of this? You're at Harvard, right? Are you participating in an online course?
1: So, I'm a HarvardX research fellow. So, HarvardX has a team of researchers who are devoted to trying to figure out how the data that's produced by these platforms and the learning experiences people have can be used to advance the science of learning. I teach a class, but it's a residential, traditional course at the Harvard Graduate School of Education called Massive The Future of Learning at Scale. And then I do research on the 1.5 or so million students that we have at Harvard X.
0: You're working in the space of education where you're looking to improve education. But a lot of people who teach at the college, the university level do not have a background in education per se. their background is in their field. And so how does how does that play out when it comes to designing a class on a brand new platform and implementing experimental, ideas across different student groups or even just in designing a class that has assessment of the class itself built into it.
1: So one of the things that we're learning, and certainly people who've done distance education for a long time have known for a long time, is that building really good online courses is a multidisciplinary endeavor. So it requires the expertise of subject matter experts who, again, may not be experts in education or online education, and so it's useful to have instructional designers and course developers and assessment experts and really being able to bring together people with lots of different kinds of expertise to be able to create rich learning experiences, including educational researchers who might be able to say, you know, what are the most important questions that you have about teaching and learning in your field? What are the concepts that students most struggle with? And how could we design some experiments to figure out which approaches might serve folks best? And so it'll require that kind of multidisciplinary approach to be able to build courses that serve students to the best of our ability, but also help us do this research that helps us advance the science of disciplinary learning.
0: Is that something that's going on? I mean, is there an institutional home for that kind of course building at, at some of the places that you've talked about?
1: We're making progress towards that, you know, and I'm hoping that this article is will inspire more of those kinds of efforts in the very first years of creating these massive open online courses. At lots of institutions, people underestimated just how much work it was to create any given course. You know, a lot of course teams were just trying to get their materials out the door according to the deadlines that they had set for their students. We're past that point now. We're more organized now. We have better systems for developing things efficiently. We understand better how to communicate with faculty and how to work with faculty. So I think we're increasingly reaching a point Where we can say faculty members who are coming to create these courses, we're going to give you a whole lot of support to be able to do that. There are going to be times where you as a subject matter expert are going to be sort of driving what we're doing. But there may be other times that instructional designers or assessment experts or researchers are driving what we're doing. So I'm hoping that the organizations that are responsible for developing courses at these different institutions will see research as one of their fundamental roles and see their job as not only creating courses, you know, that delight, courses that enlighten, but also courses that help us advance the science of learning.
0: I know a lot of people who, you know, who teach classes do not get the support, you know, of that you're describing just for a residential class.
1: Yeah. You know, and I think I mean, this is also, I would say, the most exciting time maybe in the history of institutions like Harvard and and Stanford and MIT to be talking about teaching and learning. So one of the things that sort of the MOOC moment has brought about is that there's a whole bunch of folks now who are wandering around going, gosh, it seems like there's some really exciting things that are happening in online technology. It seems like there are some other advances in the science of learning that are happening. How could we figure out how to bring those insights into our classrooms? I mean, the idea that your teaching would be put online and sort of subject to the scrutiny of thousands and thousands of others, has raised the possibility, you know, that we should be scrutinizing our teaching and learning widely. And this, you know, sort of built upon efforts that have been going on and a number of institutions to build, you know, centers for teaching and learning and things like that. You know, faculty are eager to get the kinds of supports that we're offering. And I think you know potentially what we'll see is much more connections between the kinds of resources that go into creating really good online classes and the kinds of resources that go into creating really good residential courses and then you know there may be some opportunities for cost savings or sharing or other things like that i don't know if you followed at all the decision by yale to essentially adopt parts of Harvard's Introduction to Computer Science class. I can't imagine that there's a computer science class in the country that puts as many resources behind it as Introduction to Computer Science CS50 at Harvard. You know, they've got a whole floor of people who are working on research and development and supporting people and creating media and going all over the country and filming computer scientists on locations and graduates and things like that. And for another fabulous institution like Yale to adopt substantial parts of our courses, I mean, they'll still have residential instructors and TFs and those kinds of things. But they're going to use a lot of the... Harvard Materials, that's a really exciting precedent for saying, you know, what would it look like if we had different institutions that were really pouring themselves into creating a couple courses that they really specialized in and were really signature experiences of their institution and then could be shared widely across institutions.
0: Justin, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Justin Reich writes about the future of MOOCs in the first science issue of 2015. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting slash join. That's slash join.